weekend. It's been a, it was a beautiful day yesterday compared to how it has been in the past. And we are praying it's going to be beautiful weather next weekend because that is when we are planning our Friends Day. And so I hope that you have taken one of the, the invite cards that are on the back. They're by the bulletins. They're on the tables in the back. They've been out in the activity center. And just invite one person. That's the challenge. Invite one person. You can't control whether they say yes or no. But you can control whether or not they hear an invitation. That's going deeper in a little bit later. But anyway, I hope you will come. Along with our Friends Day, uh, we're also going to have our uh, Leadership Training for Christ uh, presentation and awards also that day. And so uh, Chad will be uh, presenting our summer's kids who went to the, the Leadership Training Convention. You'll be able to see their, um, their puppet skit. You'll be able to see some of their artwork. Uh, we'll have a couple of our young men will present their sermons and their song leading. And so there'll be a lot of activities. And then the, the, after uh, we conclude with that, uh, we'll have a cookout and we'll have some uh, activities on the front lawn uh, for everybody. And so our contingency plan is, of course, the activity center. Uh, if it's more than what looks like 10% chance of rain, at least uh, you know six days out. So uh, we're praying for that. So please invite some folks. Here's some help we still need. Many of you have signed up already uh, to help with the, the email that went out, and I appreciate that so that nobody is trying to, to cover one area by themselves. We could still use uh, one more person that will help grill the food. We'll provide the grill, utensils and all. We just need somebody who can flip a burger, who can turn a hot dog. And so that's the main thing. Some help uh, filling and bringing ice chests from the activity center to the front lawn. We've got roll carts. You can roll it right down the parking lot uh, to get that up front. Uh, help with guest welcoming. And this is people who are intentionally looking for guests, for folks that maybe uh, you don't recognize, and just making them feel welcome, making some kind of contact uh, so that we can have a, a kind of a, a conversation with them and, and maybe meet some needs that they may have. Help with a safety plan. We're going to be uh, kind of uh, uh, quartering off a section of the parking lot so there's clear uh, foot traffic from this lawn over to the, the lawn at the link. And so somebody who will just kind of help us set that up in a, in a safe way uh, so that we can not do Frogger, uh, you know, across the parking lot, the flashback video game there. Uh, help moving a basketball goal to the front area. And so uh, we'll, a little bit of muscle, a couple of folks. It has wheels, but you've got to tilt it and then scoot it up there so we can have that up front too to use. And then help clean up after. We always need help cleaning up. And then, of course, uh, first and foremost, invite someone. And so help with that. If you, if you check your email, if you've got an email, and, and check one of those needs, or you can see me uh, after services and I can get you uh, set up for that. So uh, looking forward to that. A good Friends Day. Uh, our theme for LTC this year is King of My Heart. And so uh, Jackson is going to be doing his uh, sermon from LTC on uh, uh, King of My Heart. And then I'm going to add uh, some comments for us too uh, from my portion that morning uh, about uh, guarding your heart. And so that's what you can expect uh, when you come. And so we've been in a series called Ripples. And so we've been looking at how the church grew from this local inception to this global movement, global impact that still exists today. It's why we're here this morning. And you know, a lot of things in life start... But don't finish. And I'm so glad that Tress is out of town when I'm talking about starting something and not finishing it this morning. So uh, there won't be any change when she gets back. She'll notice things that are not done. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm Generation X. So I'm a, I'm a, I was born in 69. I barely got in the 60s, but I really, my formative years were in the 80s. And so that's kind of what I identify with. 
Those are my people. And so I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, and I have fond memories of things like preppy clothing uh, that we grew up with, uh, hair metal bands, which I don't know you guys, some of these guys are still touring, 60 and 70 years old, the same hair they had in the 80s. It's pretty... Uh, Weird. But anyway, Rubik's Cube, but I know Rubik's Cube is still around, but now it's more of a novelty. Uh, back then it was, it was awesome. If you knew somebody who could solve Rubik's Cube, man, who are they? They're going to MIT or something. They're destined for greatness if they could solve Rubik's Cube. Penny loafers. You never were broke, David Holly, as long as you had your penny loafers, because you always had a penny in there. And micro machines. I love those little cars. And kangaroos. You also were never broke if you could put some change or wad a dollar bill up, John Pickle, and put it in your kangaroo tennis shoes. You know how that was. And so I have great memories of these. But these were fads. We would call them fads because they began with this, this big reception and they quickly faded into history. More of a novelty. And, and let me tell you something, you millennials, 20 years from now, your kids are going to be looking at you in your yoga pants and your skinny jeans, and they're going to be making fun of you 20 years from now. So don't think that you're not living in, in a fad too. But whether it's fashion or whether it's some economic theory, whether it's politics, whatever it is, it's, it's sweeping the nation. It's the greatest thing ever. And it rarely ever lasts, Right? We see how that happens. Even many religious movements have started like wildfire and today are kind of relegated to history books. So how do you explain the Christian faith? With Thinking about all this, how do we explain the Christian faith? You had such a huge assignment that was given to such a least likely group of people to carry out that particular assignment. You had this little band of disciples we've been studying about, commissioned by Jesus... They had no political clout. They did not have the economic, the financial backing to do this. No higher education. They were nobody in this world. And yet, within a few decades, the ripple effect of this little group in Jerusalem had spread to the known world. And we are still riding the wake of what they began. It's pretty amazing. So Acts, we've been studying this early portion of it, is the record to explain how this unhindered expansion of this way is what it was called, the way of Jesus, how it is still going strong today. And so Luke reveals some factors contributing to this supernatural movement. And these disciples were empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And so we read back in chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus told them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. And so all through this record, God shows up and does His God things just like He does today, but in different ways. And so we're still empowered by His Spirit. And so in that, we are still a supernatural movement. We are a movement of God. And so another factor in this growth was this steadfast commitment that Jesus was raised from the dead. He in fact was. It's hard to intimidate people who are not afraid to die. And so Christians still go to nations, as we were reminded in in our prayers and thoughts this morning. They still go to nations hostile to the faith because they are convinced that Jesus conquered death. That He came out of that grave. And so one more thing they had was which critical to keeping this way from being just another one-hit wonder, was they had a message that could not be limited by the boundaries of race, could not be limited by the boundaries of culture or status or tradition, even by the boundaries of sin. It could not be limited. 
And so when you proclaim the gospel of unlimited grace, you cannot be limited. And they almost didn't do it. They almost couldn't do it. We're at the end of our series here. We're going to end up in Acts 15. We read of this decision made by the early church that kept the doors open to hearts seeking only what Jesus could provide. And so we're in Acts chapter 15 and beginning in verse 1. Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had a major argument and debate with them, the church appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to meet with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. And Paul, as we know, would look for ways to compromise when he could. He wrote letters to churches saying, don't fight over whether or not you should eat meat offered to idols. Don't, don't fight about whether you know, holy days or not. Don't fight about these. Let each live according to their own conscience when it comes to that. And whenever he could, he would find compromise. But he did not compromise on this. And so he came into sharp dispute with them over this because Paul understood the implications for reaching a world that lie beyond the answer to this question. And so these disputers didn't just go to Antioch. They also went to Galatia. Remember, Paul had been there also, preaching and teaching and establishing churches there. Paul and Barnabas had just been there in Acts chapter 13. And so they went to those churches that Paul had planted and they told them the same thing. You're not Christian yet if you have not been circumcised. And so Paul says to Barnabas, look, we've got to get on the same page about this. We've got to do something about this. And they went to Jerusalem and they had what is perhaps the most important meeting ever. And so in verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things God had done with them. But some from the religious party of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to observe the law of Moses. And so this conference is perhaps the most important question the church has debated. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? See, this is not about whether or not a Gentile can become a Christian. The debate is about does a Gentile have to become a Jew to become a Christian? Is Jesus enough or do they need Jesus and Moses? And so notice who raised this question. These were believers among them who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Not believers who used to be Pharisees. Now they're Christians. So why are they still Pharisees? Well, if you were a Jew in the first century, becoming a Christian did not make you less Jewish. You were still very much Jewish. If anything, it made you more Jewish when you became a Christian. Because you think about what a Pharisee had to go through in order to obey Jesus and believe in Him and accept Him as the Messiah. And so you hear, about, you hear this man teach and you see his miracles and you see the, the healings that he does. He doesn't look like Messiah. Not a Messiah you were looking for, for sure. And then he's killed. And you can't have a crucified Messiah. And then he's raised from the dead. And so now you realize the Messiah I've always been looking for is in fact this man. Not who I thought, but him nonetheless. This is the Messiah, this Jesus the Christ. And so my heart's desire as this Pharisaical Jew, my heart's desire, my lifelong purpose as a child of Abraham has just been realized. Everything I have lived and dreamed and hoped for has just come true. 
And so obeying Jesus Christ, this person would lose their seat of honor in the synagogue. They would likely lose their business if they had one. They would lose their job if they were working somewhere. Why would you do that? Why would you make that sacrifice? Because what you gained is so much more than what you lose. And so you now have fulfilled you because you have found and know the Messiah. And this land is full of those who are still looking in expectation. But you now, your, thine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And you are not less Jewish. You are more Jewish than anyone else because of what you believe now. See, Jesus was a Jew. His mother was a Jew. He was prophesied about in the Jewish Scriptures. Jesus went every week to the Jewish synagogue where He read from the Jewish Torah, the Jewish teachings. And now you're going to tell me that someone can come to Jesus and not know about Moses? Are you going to tell me that someone can go straight to Mount Calvary and never know about Mount Sinai? How is that possible? Well, how much do you need to know about church to be added by the Lord to His church? So can you understand the struggle that these Jewish Christians were having here? Paul can understand it because he'd been there. He'd been through this. And so he was just as confused about Jesus as anyone else at the start until he met Jesus. Christ confronted him on that road to Damascus. And so Paul understood what they were wrestling with. And he also understood that if, if, if they give in, if they say, okay, you must be circumcised before you can be a Christian, it will have devastating consequences on reaching the rest of the world with the Gospel of Christ. Because every time we add something to the Gospel, we subtract from its outreach potential. Every time we add something to the Gospel, we subtract from the places that the Gospel can go. So the church is facing this most important question in its young history. And Peter begins the debate. And he makes a case from history in verse 7. He says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so they would hear the message of the Gospel and believe. And so he's referring back to Cornelius. This episode, we read about it in Acts chapter 10. He says, fellas, look, we've been down this road before. You remember how God orchestrated this whole Cornelius episode. You remember that God sent a vision to me. God sent a vision to, to him, to Cornelius. God imparted His Spirit on them. God has already spoken on this question. And He has made clear what God cares about is not the status of the flesh, but the state of the heart. And so Paul then argues from ministry. And he says the, the whole group kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul while they explained now all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. They retell all of these great things that God was doing through them among the Gentiles. And Paul says, look, when I was up in Galatia, preaching to the Gentiles and starting all these churches, if the gospel I was preaching was wrong, then why was the Holy Spirit endorsing it with all of these miracles, all of these works? Why were people healed? Why, how were people saved? He says, you judge a gospel by its fruit. And so Peter argues from, from history, and Paul argues now from practical ministry, the evidence of this, and James is going to argue from prophecy, because it's not the work of God if it does not line up with the Word of God. And so Acts 15 and verse 13, after they stopped speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. 
The words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. So he goes on and he quotes from Amos and he talks about how you know, this is a consistent message within the prophets. And he says, guys, there's this rhythm running throughout Scripture where you've got the heartbeat of God for the nations. And if you just think back, you will realize this, which was there all along. We just weren't listening, he says. And so don't you remember Isaiah? And you remember how you know, we were to be the light for the Gentiles and God sent Jonah where? To the Ninevites of all people to preach repentance to them, or go all the way back to the call of our father Abraham. And he said what to him? I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So James says, look, it's always been in our Bible. We're just now seeing it in its fullness. And their case was so strong. Because what's at stake here is the very essence of the Gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And when we go across the street or when we go across town, or when we go across the state, or across the nation, or around the world, what do we tell people? Do we tell people that Jesus saves? Or do we tell people that Jesus saves and... and so Peter concludes with this, his part with this seismic verse back in verse 11. He says, on the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. Why? Because they did what God said to do, just like we did. They repented of their sins, just like we did. And they were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, just like we were. And so they received the gift of God's Holy Spirit, just like we did, he says. Irrespective of the clothes they wore, or the songs they liked, or the, the food they ate, or the limited knowledge that they had or the limited life experience that they had or the sacrifices they have not made, irrespective of that, if they could not receive what we received, he says, it wouldn't be grace for anybody. And so Peter's last words in this record of Acts ring as loud today as they did back then. See, what limits thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What limits that is not the preaching of Jesus. It's sometimes what the church too often adds to the preaching of Jesus that sets up these barriers. And so many things that we add, like their example of circumcision in their day, is good things. That's a good thing. It was good. It meant a lot. It meant a lot to them and things mean a lot to us and we're blessed by those. But what happens is, in whatever context and by whatever means your faith in Jesus came to be, then sometimes... That becomes so important to us that we think that everyone needs to find faith through that form and in that way. And my question is, is God limited by my experience? Is He limited by me? And we get discouraged. We get discouraged. Why won't they come to church with me? Why won't they study the Bible with me? Why are they not interested in the Bible? And if they don't come, then we won't go. And what can make so much sense in one generation or in one culture, can be such a barrier in another generation or another culture. And just because something is outside of my comfort zone does not mean it's outside of the Gospel or that it's in violation of the will of God. I have a friend named Dina who was at Harding with me. And Dina went on to be a, a translator for Pioneer Bible Translators. And she, went, uh, she was assigned to some portion of Africa. And she went there to translate the Bible into languages that the people there did not have. They did not have access to the Scripture because they didn't have it in their language. And so 
One time a lady in the village asked her, how can you know God hears your prayers or understands you if He does not speak your language? You think about that. How can I know that God hears me or understands me if He doesn't speak my language? And that's a challenge that we face today, right here. We struggle. We struggle to share a timeless, universal gospel in an environment where the language is continually changing. Where the ways that we heard it and the ways we shared it 10 years ago or 20 or 50 years ago are now a foreign language to the co-worker down the hall or a foreign language to the teenager next door or a foreign language to the lady that we know who's never been inside of a church building. Why aren't they open to the gospel? I guess they're just not interested in the gospel. The truth is, many people that are written off by us as not open or not interested to the Gospel are wondering if God even cares about them because He doesn't seem to speak their language. And He seems to have all these barriers in their way. So what would the brother of, James, or brother of Jesus say about this? Verse 19, James says, Therefore I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. He says, brothers, I understand that circumcision is important to you as it was commanded under the law of Moses. It's been part of our history. It's part of our heritage. But it is not the Gospel. It is not the Gospel of Christ. We are under a new law of grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And while we're under this new law, circumcision has now been relegated to a cherished tradition. And if we do not give it up, it will make it impossible for many to ever receive Jesus. And so they made this courageous decision that tradition will not limit the mission of the church. And the church in every generation must have the courage to keep making that same decision. And we must not create any barrier for people who are far away from God to get close to Jesus. And we have to identify and tear down any barriers that we might have built that already exist. And the way we do that is to rekindle our passion for people who are living outside of Jesus Christ. So that means we must focus on the outsider and not be tunnel-visioned to the insider. And most congregations are planted with this passion to reach the neighborhood in which they are planted, to see most people come to Jesus Christ. But as time moves on and the group grows, they have needs and they have concerns, which is natural. And inevitably, the passion of the leaders and the members is directed more towards those inside. And the passion wanes towards those who were living outside. And one of the points of contention between Jesus and many of the Jews of His day, especially the religious leaders, was that Jesus did not hang out with only those who were like Him. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 11, we read, when the Pharisees saw this, how Jesus acted and treated different people, they said to His disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, He said, those who are healthy don't need a physician but those who are sick do. So go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I used the illustration earlier in our series about how in soccer, you've got when the game is tied at the end, you've got this, this shootout kick where the ball is placed about 12 yards from the goal, which is like eight yards wide or so, and so eight feet high. And a professional soccer player can kick that ball Up to 80 miles an hour. Can you imagine? And so they hardly ever miss this kick. 85% of the time, they will make that kick. Five players from each team are picked to do this special kick. And so when you're the fifth player, 
and you've watched everybody else and you see the score and you come up to do your kick, if your team is behind one goal and if you do not make this kick, your team will lose, 62% make that kick. But if you're the fifth player and your successful kick will win for your team, if you are tied and you can win this game with your kick, 92% will make that kick. That's the difference between kicking not to lose and kicking to win. Living not to lose and living to win. Am I living for Christ not to lose what I already have or am I living for Christ to win others to Christ? And we share communion every week. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful time to come together. I appreciate so much David's thoughts this morning. We come together and we share this gift. This beautiful gift from God. He gave us this memorial so that we can remember Jesus and reflect on Jesus. And to say that, yeah, in Christ alone my hope is found. And to remind us that at this table of the Lord, there is always an empty chair. There is always room for one more at the table of the Lord. And here's why this can be difficult. Here's why it's tough. Because external conformity is easier than internal transformation. See, I can keep a rule a lot easier than I can let Jesus rule my heart. And so I create rules. And because then I can measure everyone else by whether or not they keep my rules. And the Jews were generationally weary from keeping all these rules, failing to keep all these rules that continued to change when the next generation was in a position to make these rules. And what did Jesus say? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy to bear, and My load is not hard to carry. That's what he said. There were two judges who were ticketed for speeding, and so they decided they, they were not going to burden the courts with uh, trying to settle this uh, violation of the law, so they were going to hear each other's case. They were going to try one another. And so the first judge you know, gets up on the stand, and the judge asks him, he says, why are you here? He says, I'm guilty of speeding. And the first judge says, okay, suspended sentence, charges dropped. So then they switch places. And the second judge says, why are you here? He says, I was speeding. He said, I fine you $250 and I'll take your license away from you. He says, wait a minute. Whoa, I just, I just suspended your sentence. I just let you go. He said, yeah, but this is the second time we've had a speeding case in here today. Somebody's got to do something about all this. Look at what Peter told the crowd. He said, so now why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. He was like, brothers, are are we really going to tell them the way you come to God is by keeping all the rules? He says, we can't do that. We haven't done it for generations. Are we going to bind that on them? And what incredible hypocrites they are for telling them to do that. When you put a priority on religious performance, you create a culture of religious appearance. And we're, we try to impress and influence one another by polishing the outside. And there have been many times that I have ironed the collar of my shirt in the front of my shirt, maybe the cuffs, because I'm in a hurry or I'm lazy. And then I put a jacket on, because you'll never know. You see my nice collar and cuffs, you have no idea how messed up I am underneath this jacket. That's why I don't take it off. We're good at polishing the parts that people can see, and we hide all the crud that's really beneath, that we're dealing with. 
And if I may be so bold, few things make it more difficult for people to seek God than church people who pretend they have it all together when everyone knows it is not true. And there is someone in your life who may not even buy into the whole Jesus, Son of God thing, but they know something in their life is not right. Something in their life is missing. And they may be here today sitting in this room with some of the most messed up people in Pulaski County who are in Christ by grace. And we're here worshiping Jesus, not because of our goodness, but because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news is not that you can be saved. What did he just say? That's, that's not the good news. Every religion tells you you can be saved if you can do this or you can accomplish that. The good news is we believe we can be saved not if, but because. Because in this way, God loved the world. He gave His one and His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved by what they can do, by how much they can accomplish through Him. Through Him. This is the Gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that is for you and for your children and for all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call into Himself. And so the question today is the same as it was on the day of Pentecost when this promise was revealed. What must we do? What must we do? And the answer, God's answer, is the same answer today as it was then. Peter said to them, Repent. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God sends His Spirit inside to begin His work of transformation that changes us from the inside out to become the people that we want to be and that He wants us to be. And you know, it was said at the beginning, this book of Acts, 30% of our New Testament is one man writing to one man about one man and the ripple effect of this relationship. Oh, Theophilus, thank you for asking the question. The ripple effect of this relationship has carried disciples of Jesus for 2,000 years and will continue until the trumpet sounds and the sky rolls back as a scroll. And it is certainly not a fad. And it is not a gimmick. And that is some good news this morning. And it's the only message the only message that can reach the entire world. Who in your life needs to see this? Who in your life needs to hear this from you? Who needs to obey this today? Will you come as we stand and sing this good song? Have you ever stood at the ocean with a white foam at your feet?